Chronicles of Leadership Chapter 9 The Librarian Has Landed John Keane continues his story. Any success I will have at Ermiston owes much to the friendship struck up with Simon Chalmers, the university librarian. On my arrival, Dr. Beamer had deputed the librarian to deal with details of my induction. As we walked to the main library building, Beamer explained that Simon was an exceptional librarian, but he does have an attitude. Don't we all, I asked. Some more socially acceptable than others, Beamer replied brusquely. Chalmers has raised dumb insolence to new heights. He will carry out requests, but sullenly and in near silence. I nodded. But isn't that okay as long as he does what you ask? That's the clever part. He's undermining authority. Unless you know about the role he has given himself, it seems that he's just very introverted. This role is... How to explain it? Are you a reader of the Discworld novels by Terry Pratchett? I said that I was. So you will be familiar with the Unseen University. The point was dawning on me. The Unseen University, populated with wizards, could be a student joke about Ermston and his professors. You have it. This is part of the tiresome charade that he encourages and constantly engages in. Only Chalmers is not a student. He's a senior member of staff with important responsibilities. The Unseen University was full of magic books which are so dangerous they have to be locked up to protect the students, I recall. Maybe so. It's our own librarian, not the books, who is our main concern. Like the creature in Pratchett's fantasies, Simon Chalmers affects the shape and persona of an orang-utan. Simon is a Discworld enthusiast, very much so. It's our own librarian, not the books, who is our main concern. Like the creature in Pratchett's fantasies, Simon Chalmers affects the shape and persona of an orang-utan. Simon is a Discworld enthusiast. You will see soon. We reached the entrance to the library and went up its fine mock Roman steps. I was about to meet the librarian whose role model was a great ape. He was working in the Tower Archive, which is all that remained of an earlier folly. Chalmers spends a lot of his time here. It's where we store our archival materials, Beamer told me. At that, a series of bumps and crashes reverberated from above, and a figure hurtled down the narrow circular staircase, swinging from his security rope. It crashed into Beamer, who was sent sprawling to the ground. The librarian, grinning widely, raised both his hands above his head in an obscure gesture. Ook, he said politely. The librarian had landed. This is John Keane, Beamer snapped at Simon, dusking himself down. Stop fooling around, Chalmers. Get Dr Keane kitted up for business. He'll tell you what he wants from you to help him in his research. And with that, he stalked out of the tower. Do you address an orangutan? even if it's a human playing the role of one. I'd reached a critical moment for our future relationship. Drawing on my years of studying animal behaviour, I came up with the right answer to the problem. I opened my briefcase, scrabbled around and found what I'd been searching for, pulling out a banana I'd brought for lunch. Simon stared at the proffered gist and burst into a very human laugh. 
let interspecies peace break out, he said. I congratulate you on your diplomatic approach. Until I have taught you my particular Simeon dialect, I will conduct all future exchanges in English. From that meeting, our friendship developed. Simon eased me through the dense undergrowth of university regulations. He was particularly enthusiastic, of course, when I told him about my own interest in animal behaviours as pathways to leadership awareness, offering to play a bit part in my lectures if I ever wanted an assistant. I have not taken him up on his offer yet. I have a perfectly adequate python as lecture assistant. By far the biggest bonus for me from our lenship was his genuine interest in my proposed research project. Scholars have often left hidden messages in their books. Sometimes they were fearful of punishment as heretics for their ideas, he said, before making a point that deflated my confidence somewhat. There is one big problem. Keane was an operator on the world stage. When the Great War ended in 1918, he could see the dangers of excessive reparations enforced on Germany. He wrote publicly about the consequences, predicting the rise of another evil regime in a short period of time. He didn't attempt to conceal his unpopular views and his contempt for the leaders of his day. I knew that Keynes kept very secret diaries indeed about his sexual adventures, which would have ruined his career if they had come to light. I wondered whether I had been too influenced by that strange conversation I once had with an old man and his hints of secret societies, and a new age where dictators were battling for control in a world running out of time to rescue it for future generations. Is my future career now resting mainly on the efforts of a librarian who acts out a fantasy of being an orangutan? And so I started out at Ermston in a state of bliss, youngish, ambitious, full of ideas, the students gave me great ratings for imaginative use of animals in understanding human behaviour. I could see, at least to my own satisfaction, what the old man had been hinting at, that there was a powerful message that Keynes had hidden away in his writings. Then there was my illness, and afterwards an increasing sense that I was not producing, not progressing, fearing that my failure to deliver was becoming obvious. I began taking a greater interest in the politics of the university. Then, one day, I read the minutes of a meeting of the Standing Committee on Research Effectiveness with a growing sense that trouble was brewing. Minutes of the Standing Committee. The Vice-Chancellor thanked the Dean and the members of his working group for producing the report that had been circulated. The Dean said that the figures showed too high a proportion of underperformers on various research metrics. He estimated that we stand to lose nearly half our funding. Professor Snee pointed out that psychology was the only department where faculty were all research active. Dr. Beamer wanted it noted that psychology had the worst student ratings for teaching and that the university also needed to recruit lecturers who were good teachers. The Dean said he had identified faculty who might be considered for early retirement. The Vice-Chancellor asked for any further suggestions. Professor Snee suggested that a list of staff with industry funding should be prepared and evaluated case by case when contracts are being reviewed. The Dean agreed to compile such a list. Snee is out to get rid of people like me, 
He thinks there's no place for my sort of work in his vision of a research-based institution. A few weeks after the minutes of the committee meeting came out, Montague Beamer asked to see me in his office at the Beehive. He was still as upbeat as ever, but his news was unwelcome. I'm seeing Wendy later today. It's my regular chance to say how well we're doing. Our teaching is right up there on the performance indicators. He meant my students had been ticking the right boxes for the electronic and anonymous surveys required at the start, middle and end of each course module. Unfortunately, the subscribers to our courses are down. Not your fault, John. The market is as bad as I've ever known it. I've been promised that most of our companies will join again next year. He didn't sound convincing. Bit of an Achilles heel if we don't meet our budgets, he went on. The Vice-Chancellor is a good friend of mine, but she needs ammunition to support us. Ammunition? Something to win a close battle with. A close battle? But my contract comes up in a couple of months. You never said anything before. My colleague Brush at the Beehive partly reassured me. He's not called Beamer the schemer for nothing, he said. He's bloody good. He's at his best in a tight corner. I'm the one in the tight corner, I said gloomily. No one talks about it, but Beamer has friends in high places, politicians, in the police, local business leaders like Triscothic at Meniscus. That's how you got your funding. And he calls in his markers when he wants to. I noted the remark about Beamer arranging my funding from Meniscus. I was becoming alarmed about his methods of fixing things. Although, with such a schemer in my corner, maybe I still have a chance to progress my career. At one level, I was shocked by Beamer's news. He had misled me about the extent of his influence. Now his breezy assertions about my career were looking no more than another marketing pitch. I had been very naive about how universities conduct their internal affairs. Would I be reappointed to my post? I had no idea how to provide Beamer with any ammunition. If lucky, I would have to return to Meniscus, if there was still a job there for me. My rescue was to come from an unexpected quarter. Just as despair was grasping me by the academic testicles, Simon the librarian and Discworld enthusiast helped me escape its grip. I knew he had made an important discovery when I received his email with a cryptic message, This is a three-banana find. See you under the banyan tree. I worked out he meant me to join him for lunch in the outdoor coffee area on campus and, of course, bring along some bananas for him. The examination month of June had been ushered in by the spell of fine weather encouraging students into the sunshine. The campus was clustered with young bodies, each with a bundle of study guides in their ring folders. At lunchtime, Simon had found a bench to sit on and was at work finishing what looked like a homemade rye bread sandwich. Ook, he said by way of greeting. I will now speak again in your dialect. He took a tired-looking apple out of his polythene lunchbox, bit a large chunk from his wrinkled surface, chewed away at it furiously. Was this in ape roll or was it just the way Simon always attacked apples? Ook to you too, I answered. So what have you discovered this time? He squinted up into the sun. 
You asked me to see whether there was anything worth investigating on Keynes in our archives. It turns out there is something very interesting indeed. It connects Keynes with a secret society that goes back 300 years. The original documents have somehow found their way to us at Urmston. My hopes were rising, not just for my reappointment, but from a turn in fortune for my entire future career. Keynes was a very committed committee man at Cambridge, Simon continued. He was one of the few who knew the practicalities of finance. He was always looking for new ways of fundraising. It seems he once unearthed a cache of ancient documents. But when he started examining them, to his astonishment he saw they contained a secret that he considered could not be revealed. He had my full attention. Documents belonging to Isaac Newton had been discovered in an embossed wooden chest and had fallen into the hands of the faithful college scholar and administrator John Maynard Keynes. There were entire sections written in mysterious symbols. There were other sections in which Newton wrote of his darkest secret using his well-authenticated handwriting. The great pioneering figure of the modern age of science had turned back to the ancient ways of alchemy. He was convinced they could offer the way to solve the ancient dream of transmutation of lead into gold. The person who was ushering in an age of scientific rationality had become a believer in the dark arts. Keynes saw the dangers to the reputation of Isaac Newton if this were to be revealed. He ensured that the documents remained a closely guarded secret for another 30 years. This news from the librarian came around the time of publication of the Da Vinci Code. I suggested that Simon might have been influenced by Dan Brown's blockbuster. He would have none of it. I was a trained historian before my transmogrification to an ape, he protested. I am still capable of distinguishing truth from fiction. Historians seek out facts to authenticate what otherwise is just speculation. The main cache of Newton's secret diaries was found some year ago. There's even been a television programme made about them. I remembered a package I'd found in the archives which was still waiting to be catalogued. What it contains is incredible. I suspect Keynes wanted to keep the content separate from materials that were more easily discovered. I could hardly wait to inspect what he had found. When can I see this? Ook, said Simon, getting up and wrapping a large rubber band around his empty lunchbox, which I took to mean, now, come with me. My grasp of his language was improving with every conversation. It's your research area. I'm just your knowledge monkey, he added. You take the credit. You will be able to show the world what we have in our archives. He didn't really mind if I was the one to draw attention to what he had found. I was suddenly someone with a future. But at Simon's discovery arrived in time even to strengthen my chances of a contract being reviewed. I can't remember much of what happened at my contract renewal interview. It was held in one of the bigger committee rooms in the Vice-Chancellor's building. Professor Snee had set up a star chamber for the prosecution. In my corner was the wily Dr. Beamer. With his advice, I had submitted a CV in the required style, outlining my educational qualifications with original documents from my old university research publications, professional publications, doctoral students supervised, esteem indicators, grant monies obtained, conference papers given, 
career moves. Dr. Beamer had obtained references from several independent referees written to impress a committee. But an acceptable CV was only one of challenges to be overcome at the interview. The worst mistake, Beamer warns me, is to appear as if you know more than your questioner about anything. Agree about the subtlety of their questions. Offer some evidence for appreciating the great candle power of the questioner. Hint rather than attack. When you're asked about your contribution to knowledge, select ways that will add to the glory of those vested interests represented around the room. I've recognised a few of those sitting in judgment. One or two were colleagues who were well disposed to my ideas, but others were not. Dr. Beamer was acting as an usher, bringing me into the room and taking me away in anteroom to wait for the verdict. The questioning was polite throughout, although I can remember little of it now. Someone asked her what my publishing plans were. Beamer had anticipated the question and coached me on the answer. I said they had been delayed by the discovery of a highly promising line of research that had emerged as a result of library research. I added I was working to confirm the provenance of a historically important document which would demonstrate a connection between Ermston University and John Maynard Keynes and lead to a reinterpretation of the biographic knowledge of the great economist. However, Snee was not to be denied. But nothing yet has established the authenticity of the documents. We're trying to avoid premature claims, I said. All our efforts to date suggest them to be authentic. Professor Snee's features puckered into a look of disbelief. After that, all is a blank. I remember Beamer settling me down in an anteroom again to wait for the result. How did I do? He took too long to answer and then said, There'll be some who will support Snee because they want to get at me through you. In which case, I'm finished at Ermston. Don't worry. You will get your contract renewed. Ah, here comes the Dean himself. I went back into the interview room to be given the news I feared. But my appointment was renewed. All was set fair. But not for long. I could not have foreseen the series of delays that followed. I struggled with the illness that was contributing to my writer's block and to a deepening sense of failure. Eventually, as my health recovered, I took up my full teaching duties again. Then one day, at the start of a lecture, I was interrupted in a way that was to change my life.